welcome. Good distinctions are the spice of life, and today we have quite a few coming at you. My name is Teresa, and today we're going to be walking through the nature of the moral action, what it is, what it's not, what terms and formulas we can use to evaluate whether or not an action is ethical. So to begin, we're going to start just by chatting really quickly about how we even go about this and what field of study we tend to do this type of work and work with this formula in. So philosophy, like any other field, has a lot of subdivisions to it. So if someone is studying philosophy, there are a lot of different branches of philosophy that we can be concerned with. So there's metaphysics, there's logic, there's phenomenology, there's epistemology, and it's important to know what the end goal of any of those particular studies are. So in the same way that if we are studying medicine or chemistry or math, we want to know why we're studying those things. What are we trying to get to when we're partaking in an endeavor to study anything? Philosophy is the same way. Ethics is the branch of philosophy that is concerned with the study of morality, the study of right and wrong. Any field of study has what's called first principles, which guide that field of study. And again, they're saying, what are we ordered towards? What are we trying to do here? The first principle of ethics is to do good and to avoid evil. That seems maybe a little elementary to say that that seems almost too basic to even speak. That obviously that's what we want to do as humans. We're trying to do the right thing. We want to do the right thing. And in seeking to do the right thing, we're naturally going to be avoidant of the wrong things. We have this written into our beings in really fundamental primal ways. So for example, if someone has a baby on a kitchen counter and that baby puts their hand onto a hot stove, immediately the baby is going to lift their hand off of the hot stove because there's something evil or bad and harmful happening. And so immediately that child is going to be avoidant of that thing that is causing them pain and causing them harm. So we just naturally are ordered towards what is good and safe and healthy for us and avoidant of things that are dangerous or difficult for us. In a similar way, we operate like this in terms of morality. We have this truth written into our beings that we are made for what is good, for what is uplifting for our soul, what will lead to our own flourishing. And we are avoidant of things that will take us away from that, that aren't ordered towards our fulfillment as humans. So human actions are naturally ordered and inclined towards choosing the good, and thus they're naturally inclined to be avoidant of what is evil. There is a ton of gray area in there, which is why there's this entire field of ethics, that it's not always that simple. It's not always as simple as just do the right thing or just don't do the wrong thing. There is plenty of middle ground where it's not always clear what the right thing is or even why the right thing is the right thing. So ethics is deeply concerned with providing a framework with which we can understand and evaluate where we should go when we find ourselves maybe in gray area or we find ourselves unsure of how to proceed because we do want to honor this inclination that we are made to choose the right thing and we are avoidant of what is what is wrong. 
We say that this principle of doing good and avoiding evil is a self-evident principle. What this means is that no one really has to explain that to us. When we say something is self-evident, it just means no one ever really had to provide you with a syllogism or an argument as to why violence or murder is wrong. You would just sort of naturally understand that. We naturally understand that those things are wrong and we will naturally be avoidant of it or we will be shocked by it if we perceive that happening around us. So this principle that we want to do good and we want to avoid evil is something that's self-evident. No one ever had to explain to us that that is what we're made for. But sometimes we do need some assistance in determining how we get to those good things. So before we proceed, I want to just quickly define a couple terms right off the bat that I think may be helpful. There's a term ordered and disordered that is used often in ethics And sometimes that can make people feel a little prickly when they hear it because the term disordered carries with it a lot of different connotations in our world. When it's being used in a philosophical sense, we say that an action is ordered if it is ordered towards what the person doing the action is made for. So it's ordered towards the good of a human person. It's ordered towards human flourishing and fulfillment. We say an action is disordered if it is ordered against what that action is for. When we use this term, we're not saying that the agent or the person doing the action is disordered or has a disorder. We're simply saying that the action isn't ordered towards what it's supposed to be doing. So it doesn't have a lot of morality attached to it. It's not saying something about the agent having a disorder or anything like that at all. It's simply saying, is this ordered towards what it's for or is it ordered towards something else? Is there some type of twisting that has somehow occurred here? The other two terms I want to quickly walk through are the terms good and evil. So again, the first principle of ethics is to do good and avoid evil. And what are we even talking about when we say that? We say that a thing is a good thing if it is the type of thing that it's made to be. So for example, an apple tree is considered a good apple tree if it's producing apples. So if something is doing the action of the kind of thing that it's made to do, we would say that it's good. If an apple tree started producing pears or oranges or pineapples or pizzas, we would say that's super interesting, but we would technically say that it's an evil apple tree. It's not good because it's not doing the kind of thing that apple trees are meant to do. So something is good if it is the kind of thing it's meant to be. A good teacher teaches. A good student studies. If someone's water bottle is leaking water and not holding water, it's an evil water bottle. It's not a good water bottle. We're not saying anything about the morality of the water bottle itself. We're simply saying it is not ordered towards the type of thing it's supposed to be. So similarly, if we have an understanding of what something good is, we can then understand what something evil is. So an evil thing is, or something is doing evil, if it is doing something disordered, it's not acting in accordance with the kind of thing it's made to be. So if a teacher is showing movies all day long and a teacher isn't teaching, we would say they're an evil teacher. We're not necessarily saying that the soul of that person is bad or they have a horrible character or that they're an evil person. We're simply saying they're not doing the kind of thing that they're made to be in the context of being an educator and being a teacher. There's also a similar way to talk about evil, which references something having a lack of a good that should be present. 
which means that if someone is lacking a good that should be present in their life, we say that there's an evil there. So if someone is born without one of their arms, there's a lack of a do good. They should have two arms. They ought to have two arms. There is a good that is due that person that is not there. And so we say that it is evil that they only have one arm. We are not in any way saying that the person with one arm is evil. We are not in any way saying that the parents of that child with one arm are evil or have done anything evil to lead to that point. We're simply using evil in the sense that there's a good that should be present. That present is not, that good is not there. And therefore we say that it's evil, that it's, it's lacking. So when the term evil is used, in some ways it will be referencing some level of morality, and in some ways it's just talking about natural evils where there should be a good that's present, it's not there, and so the term that will be used is evil. Okay, so we're about to go into this formula that helps us understand how to evaluate an action. Sometimes there's some pushback in regards to people who do ethics or learning how to do ethics well, where people can be concerned that perhaps this would make someone too stringent or maybe too judgmental, and that to view the world with these principles would perhaps be a little too harsh and a little too black and white. My response to that is that In being able to do ethics well, we actually free ourselves to be less judgmental and more empathetic people by being able to simply look at actions and not judge the morality of the people doing the actions. So understanding the nature of an action really matters in being able to love people really well and simply make judgments about actions. So being able and confident in identifying particular aspects of an action and determining whether that action is good or bad or neutral helps us understand our own actions. It helps us inform and examine our own consciences, and it helps us make better choices overall. This also has a ton of practical applications out in the world. This idea And these formulas, these principles are used all the time in areas of law and science and medicine. It's also just helpful in being able to determine the right course of action in our day-to-day lives, in big decisions and also in small decisions. It provides a framework and a language through which we can evaluate situations that are presented to us. And then it helps us explain our conviction about those situations to other people. So for example, if as a parent, you are reading a book or watching a movie with your kids and some type of action occurs and you want to be able to have a teaching moment with your child, being able to have the language and the framework with which you can do that and explain to them, here's why in this situation, this person may have done this thing. And here's why we would say maybe there was a better choice that could have been made, gives you as a parent clear language with which to walk your child through that. So it can be very helpful even in situations like that where you can find common language with another to be able to have fruitful discussions about morality. So what are we even talking about when we're talking about moral action and human actions? We say that there are kind of two things that humans can do. We say that there are acts of man or acts of humans 
and human actions, which sounds far too similar, but they're referencing two very distinct things. Acts of man are things that human beings do that aren't freely chosen. So these are things like digestion or breathing or reflexes. These are just things humans do that are not deliberately willed. We bear no culpability for those things. When you go to the doctor and they hit your knee with a hammer and they're trying to see if you kick them, if you kick your doctor and you injure him or her, you are not culpable for that because that was a reflex. So those are actions that aren't deliberately willed and therefore we have no culpability or morality attached to them. Human actions, moral actions, are actions that are freely chosen by the agent. They are freely chosen by the person doing the action. What is essential in that statement is that term freedom. St. Augustine says that no action can be good unless it is freely chosen. So that freedom is essential in determining morality and in determining culpability of the agent. For an action to be free, there must be at least two choices. If there is no capacity to choose, there's no ability to choose or distinguish between choices, we cannot say that an action is free. So there must be at least two choices for an action to be considered free at all. So even a yes or no question can be free. So if someone had a gun to somebody's head and they said, steal this pack of gum or I'm going to shoot you. There aren't a ton of options there, but it's not a great situation, but there is a yes or no choice. That action can still be free, even though that person's freedom is severely limited and therefore their level of culpability will be far less than someone who just freely chooses to steal a pack of gum without a gun to their head. There's still a yes or no question that there is still the choice to do so or the choice to not do so. So there are still two options there. There aren't a ton of options, but there are still two options, and therefore that action is free. So for an agent to be culpable of an action, they must have free will, they must have control over what they're doing, and knowledge of what they are doing. Once we get to that point, once we know that an action has been freely chosen by the agent, we are able to take that particular action and section it into three different parts. So this is where we get to this formula of understanding that can really assist us in being able to determine where the morality of an action is placed, what part of the action the morality lies in, and whether or not that action is permissible or not. So the moral action is made up of three different parts. I tend to think of this in sort of a bullseye framework, that if you think of the first part as being sort of the core of an action and then rings of morality around that. The core is the most significant part. And then each layer around that progressively becomes less significant. All three of those aspects are necessary to make up the action and inform the morality. But the single most important aspect of any moral action where the seat of morality lies is in that center section, which is called the object. The object of an action is the center of an action. It is the single most important point of the moral act. It is what the action is. It is the concrete action that has been taken, and it is the action that the will has freely chosen to do. One way to think about this is to look at a full action and say, what is the most 
watered down, simplest version of what has occurred. Another way to think about this is what is the verb here? What was the action that was taken? What did the agent choose to do? So if we have a full situation where we have a varsity athlete that has a playoff game later on in the night and they need to make sure that they are hydrated well before the game. So they run into Walmart and they realize that they forgot their wallet. So they quickly just swipe a Gatorade before the game so that they're fully hydrated. You have this whole situation, but all that we care about in determining the object is stealing. That's it. I don't care about why they're doing it. I don't care about where or when or even who it is. It's simply what is the action that was taken? What is the simplest version? That's the object. The object of an action can be morally good, morally bad or evil, or morally neutral. Most actions are morally good or neutral in their object. It is very rare to have an action that is morally evil in its object which should give us a lot of hope. It should let us breathe easy because actions that are morally wrong in their object will never, ever, ever be permissible. We say that an action that is wrong in its object is inherently or intrinsically wrong, which simply means that within the object, so inside of the object, there is something tainted. There's something evil. And because the morality is within the object and that morality is evil, it can never, ever, ever be good. The good news about that is there are very few actions that are that way. Some examples of actions that are inherently or intrinsically wrong, which means that they're evil in their object, are things like murder or abuse or torture. There will never be situations that will justify those actions, no matter what. Immediately what people respond to when they hear that is they say, well, what about killing in self-defense? And even in that, you can hear that the verb is different. Killing has a different object than murder does. So killing is is a separate type of action. That distinction, the distinction between objects that are morally good, bad, or neutral is incredibly helpful in living out our daily lives in full freedom. Because if we live with this sense that at any moment we could commit an action that's inherently evil, we will walk on eggshells our entire life. But if we know that most things that we do have an object that's morally neutral or morally good, that frees us and it actually allows us to be more responsible because it means that we actually are the ones who are going to be determining more of the morality in our lives, which yes, gives us more responsibility, but it also gives us more freedom. That it doesn't mean you're just going to stumble into evil. If someone is murdering or torturing someone, there's a lot of intentionality there. So you will not find yourself in a situation where you are accidentally doing an intrinsically evil action. One thing that might be helpful to mention as an example and where this distinction can be really helpful in our world is um, in areas of medicine, when we're trying to be very, very clear about what's actually happening. Um, In recent months, there's been a lot of misunderstanding between abortions and miscarriages and referencing both of those as the same thing. However, if we can name the object of both of those actions, we can see before we even look at those other two components of an action that 
the object of an abortion and the object of a miscarriage are incredibly different, even though the end result, the effect of those actions are the same, that there is the ending of a life. So the object of an abortion is the intentional ending of a preborn child's life. That is the object of what is happening, is the intentional killing, the murder of a preborn child. The object of a miscarriage isn't actually a moral act at all because there is no free choice. It's simply something that happened in the woman's body that caused the preborn baby to die, but there was no intentional action that occurred to cause that death. So even though the effects of those two things are the same, that the end result of an abortion and a miscarriage is that a baby's life has ended, those actions that led to those effects are radically different. And so even just in being able to determine what actually happened here in anything that we're doing helps us create clearer arguments and explanations as to why we hold certain moral convictions. Once we have determined that the object of an action is good or neutral, we can continue into these other areas of the action to determine whether or not an action can be good or bad. Again, if an action is intrinsically wrong, it's evil in, an, in its object, we are not going to look at those other two areas. They don't matter to us because there's nothing that could make those actions okay. However, if the object is morally good or neutral, then we look to these other two factors to determine morality. So the center part of an action, the most important part of an action is the object. That second ring, the second most important component of an action is the intention. The intention is why the agent is doing the action. What is the intended outcome? It is the purpose of the action. That being said, just because an action is good or neutral, it does not mean that we're, we're off the hook automatically. Intention can change a good or neutral object into a bad action. For example, doing volunteer work is a morally good action. Assisting other people who need it is good in its object. But if the reason, the intention that the agent is doing volunteer work is for the purpose of being praised for it, or it's only to put it on a resume, or it's for prideful reasons, well, now the intention has altered the morality of that action. Sure, the action on its own is good, but the reason it's being done is a self-interested reason, and it now has changed the nature of the action. So just because an action is good doesn't mean that on the whole, the full action is automatically going to be good because intention can completely color it. So it can change good or neutral objects into immoral or bad actions. On the flip side, intention cannot justify evil actions. So on the one hand, you can have a good object that then can be colored evil with an evil intention or a neutral object that can be colored evil with an evil intention. Similarly, a good intention cannot then come in and color an evil action good. 
So again, if an action is bad, it doesn't matter how good an intention is. A good intention can never justify an intrinsically evil action. We can never do evil in order to obtain a good. Classic example of this is if you look at movies like The Godfather or something, there are tons and tons and tons of good intentions in situations like that. Avenging or protecting a family member is a good intention, right? That w- protecting the honor or the dignity or the safety of a family member is an incredibly good intention. But if that good intention is gone about in a bad way, and an evil action is attached to that good intention, like killing somebody in order to protect a family member, then that action is still wrong. Murder is still wrong, even with the best intentions. So for an action to be considered praiseworthy, both the object and the intention must be good. There cannot be a discretion between those two things. So if we have a good or neutral object and a good intention, We move on to this third component of an action, which is called the circumstance. So the object is what is going on. The intention is why is this going on? And the circumstance is everything else in regards to that action. It's the context and the conditions upon which the action occurs. It's all those external factors. Um, So to whom did it occur? How often? Where did it occur? When did it occur? What are the effects and what are the outcomes of this action? Circumstance is the least significant component of an action. It is important, but it will not change a bad action to a good action. And it also will not change a good action into a bad action. So in the way that intention in some situations can sort of flip the morality that you can have a good object and a bad intention and it will make the action bad. Circumstance can't do that. All circumstance can do is change the gravity of the action. It changes the level of moral responsibility and culpability. I think of it as a sliding scale where you have this action and you just have kind of a scale of morality and circumstance can just slide the action on this scale, but it's never going to totally determine the morality on the whole. An example of this is cheating in school. Cheating on a spelling test in second grade is not as big of a deal as cheating on the SAT in 11th grade. The object is very similar, cheating in an academic setting, but what is happening is different. That one situation is far more severe than another. It's far more morally problematic to cheat on the SAT when you are 17 years old than it is to cheat on a spelling test when you are seven years old. Similarly, we hold people accountable in different stages of their life, depending on how much they know. So if a 30-year-old and a six-year-old commit the same action, we would naturally, under most circumstances, hold a 30-year-old far more culpable than we would hold a six-year-old for the same action because the 30-year-old has lived far more life. They are above the age of reason. They know more. They have a more developed conscience, and so we should hold them more accountable, even though the same action has occurred. This is why we have different degrees of things in regards to law, that there is a difference between first degree and second degree murder. Some actions are more serious than others. In our everyday lives, this can be helpful for people in education or people who are raising children that there is going to be a level of proportionality in terms of discipline. 
that if there's a question of how to discipline or should we even discipline a student or a child in regards to certain actions, it is totally normal and good to say that there are varying degrees of discipline proportionate to what was done, even how many times something was done. That the first time a student does something wrong and we then come in and we explain and we say, here's why we think that maybe this isn't permissible. Can you tell us why you did this? Here's a different way to approach a similar situation in the future. We wouldn't hold them very accountable in that circumstance because it's the first time something has happened. If those conversations have occurred and that student has full knowledge and they do that for the 10th time, it's okay to say that in this situation, we're going to hold them more accountable. It's not changing the nature of what that student is doing, but it's just saying, oh, if we have this sliding scale, well, the 10th time you do something is a bit more severe than the first time you do something. So again, circumstance cannot make a good action bad, and it cannot make a bad action good. It simply is going to change the level of responsibility that someone has when they make that decision. So the circumstance in which someone cheats on their spouse because something occurred or they had fallen in love with someone else, whatever, whatever the circumstances are, potentially could make us more empathetic to that choice, but no circumstance will ever make us high five someone for infidelity. Infidelity is always wrong, no matter what. The circumstance in which someone chooses that is not going to ever make that good. It can potentially slide it on a sliding scale, but it will never flip the morality of the action itself. All it will ever do is change the level of responsibility and culpability of the agent. Taken on the whole, one single action has all three components. So every single action that is freely chosen and deliberately willed has an object and intention and a circumstance. And in order for an action to be considered good, all three must be morally good or neutral. One aspect that is really important to mention in judging an action and splicing apart these three components, what we are judging is only the action. We are not judging the person doing the action. Ethics doesn't really touch that very often. We're not judging the person who's doing it. We're judging the action that has been done. I'll put a link to a podcast that Will has done about this. Um, But it really is important to note that ethics isn't really in the business of making character claims or character judgments because we can't know that. I cannot know another person's soul in the moment that they're choosing an action. I can't make a claim about their soul or their character. All I can judge is the action that was done. All I can do is judge the thing that has been done. And that should actually draw us more into ethics. Sometimes people are hesitant about doing ethics because they don't want to become judgmental people and they don't want to go through the world being like, bad action, bad action. Oh, that was good. That was bad. If studying ethics causes that to happen, then ethics is being studied incorrectly. Studying ethics actually helps us be more empathetic and compassionate towards ourselves and towards others by giving us frameworks to judge only actions and to help us know that I cannot make rash judgments about people. And if I am, I shouldn't be. 
all I can judge is what has been done um, and not the person doing the action. That being said, we can make those character judgments about ourselves, which is why we have the capacity to take ourselves to confession and receive forgiveness and grace for what we've done. Because I do know my intention that I'm not walking through life being like, oh, I did this object, but I don't really know why I did that. We are able to be reflective and we're able to determine all three components of our own actions and be able to say, wow, I have done this one thing consistently. Maybe that's becoming part of my character and I don't think that it should. And so therefore I'm going to reorient. I'm going to go to confession. I'm going to start over and I'm going to be really intentional about no longer choosing to do that thing. In summary, every single human action that is really chosen has three parts, the object, what the action is, the intention, why that action has been done, and the circumstance, which is all the other extenuating factors surrounding the action. The object is the most important part. If the object is good or neutral, we can look to the intention to inform the morality of that action. And then the circumstance helps us determine how severe, how grave that action is. Everything in the universe is ordered towards something, and our actions are absolutely no different. So there are countless factors as to why or how or where or when someone chooses to do a thing. But that fact that there is an objective nature to our actions is necessary not only in disciplines like law or medicine or even just ethics, where a claim is needed in evaluating human action, But it is so necessary for all of us in our everyday decisions as we seek to live lives that are ordered towards our own human flourishing. This formula and these principles for determining the morality of actions are simply one tool that can aid us in striving for lives of virtue and lives of fulfillment and happiness. That is all that we have for today. Um, please go follow us at Good Distinctions on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to Good Distinctions on YouTube and Substack. Good Distinctions are the spice of life. Choose goodness, and we will see you next time.